are turning there, just again as a reminder for you, make sure that if you don't have already that there are elements in the back and the front so that when we come to the end of our time that we are prepared to take the, the Lord's Supper. And also during the course of just our time this morning, make sure that you are um, preparing yourself. Uh, sometimes one of the hardest things is when you're in a worship setting and it's like, well, this is what we're doing. But sometimes the best thing to do is actually not observe. It's to take the time to examine to confess sin, uh, and to be mindful of his sacrifice. And other times, yes, absolutely, we jump in, we dive in together. Uh, but that is certainly a, a decision that you have. And so, Acts chapter 17, I'm just going to begin reading in Acts 17, verse 1, and then we're going to dive on in. It says, Now when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. They are Paul, Silas, Timothy where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous... And taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. When they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men have upset the whole world, who have upset the whole world, have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them. And they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus." They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who had heard these things, and when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Pray with me. Father, as we have an opportunity to come to your word this morning, I pray that in Jesus' name that we would give our our attention, our minds, and our hearts to you this morning, Lord, and that uh, our, our focus would be upon you and you alone. And so, where you're sitting right now, would you pray? Just to yourself, I recognize that you come in with a whole bunch of things on your mind and your heart. Would you cast them to Jesus so that you could hear from the Lord today? And if you would, would you pray for me that I would be a help to you as we look at this passage in Acts 17 today? Well, Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, some of you know that what I'm about to pull out is something that I've taken sometimes on different trips, but if I go overseas, this is basically just an adapter that you can take. This one specifically is designed to take to Europe, and it's got the little code on it with the little code on the inside to kind of know, oh, if I was going to go to Europe, I might want to use this in order to plug in different devices and be able to have what I need to have in order to get my phone charged or my tablet charged. Uh, I got stuff for Australia, the Caribbean, Africa, Great Britain, and Hong Kong. Some of these look quite unique and interesting. Uh, but if you've ever been overseas, uh, you know that at times you need an adapter to be able to get the energy or the power that you that you need. Otherwise, you're just going to have a dead phone and it's just going to be basically a brick uh, in your pocket or in your purse and it's not really going to do you any good. And the reason why I bring that up is because for all of you, whether it's going overseas and having to adapt to like a specific culture, 
Uh, I can remember when I went to, to Russia for a summer, I had to not only adapt with electronics and different plugins, but I also had to make a, an emphasis to, in order to be able to, uh, to adapt to when the power grid went down and all the hot water got shut off, you still need to get cleaned up. And so you take cup showers. That is a unique experience if you've never taken a cup shower before. Or you go into a different place and, and you got to kind of adapt to the culture, to the food. I heard recently of a man who's having to eat mice. Yes, mice. And he said the tail was the best part. Kind of gross, but that's a thing. And so you adapt to different settings and different situations. Same is true for you. You may have to adapt if you get a new job, you get a new boss. You have to adapt whenever you may make a move, whenever you join a new church family. Like You have to adapt in certain ways at different times in our lives. We adapt. The reason why I bring that up is because what we're going to see in this passage is, is even though Paul has a regular rhythm of things on his mission trips and on his mission journeys of sharing the gospel, he's not closed off to, to adapting to the situation in order to proclaim Christ. The way that I put it was just simply Paul adapted his method in order to proclaim the message. Would you be willing to do the same? Sometimes we can get really focused on this is how church is supposed to look. This is how ministry is supposed to look. This is what a mission trip looks like. This is what visitation looks like. And, and sometimes there's some great principles that are involved, but we want to make sure that above all else, the message is getting out. And if things need to be adapted here and there on the, the things that we can kind of adapt with the method of things, uh, we, we need to do that. We need to recognize to do that, but we want to make sure that the message remains the same. And we see that here with Paul, especially as we get to the end of this chapter. Now, I just read through you verses 1 through through 9 in chapter 17, but it's time to go to a map. So if we can put the map up on the screen, it's map time. And if you can't see, again, you have a hopefully a little map handout there for you. But where we left off last week, if you were with us, is Paul took off from Antioch with Silas. They went into Galatia, where Lystra, Iconium, and Derby are at. This is where he picks up Timothy. Timothy joins them now on their second missionary journey. And then they're making their way here into, well, I, basically they get over to Troas, and Paul has a desire to want to go into Asia, which is some of these churches may sound familiar, Ephesus and Smyrna and Colossae, and says the Lord prevented him from going into Asia. He was also prevented from going into Bithynia. Two different times, Paul is like, I want to go here for a good cause and a good reason, proclaim Christ. And two different times, he's prevented by the Lord to where he can't. And then he receives that Macedonian vision of this man who says, basically, Paul, would you come to us? And so instead of going east or going south here into Asia, he goes west into Macedonia. And what we saw last week was he landed here in Philippi. In Philippi, he, he gets to have an opportunity to see these three converts into the Christian faith of Lydia, the purple of cellar, the, the slave girl who had been possessed by a demonic spirit, and then the jailer. All three hearing about the love of Jesus, the cause of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and then forever their life has changed. You see the origins and the roots of the church of Philippi, and later on you're going to read the book of Philippians, and you have an idea of what's going on. Well, now he's journeying from Philippi and he goes through Amphipolis and Apollonia where he lands in Thessalonica. Thessalonica was really the capital of Macedonia. So this is a pretty influential city where Paul is landing here with Silas and, he's, and Timothy and he's taking the time to do kind of his regular rhythm of things. He goes into a synagogue and for three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, three weeks in a row, he goes into kind of this church type worship setting that he's familiar with, I'm, I imagine Silas and Timothy are familiar with, they go into a familiar setting to proclaim the gospel. 
And it's just a reminder that it's good to be reminded that even though many of you, at times you might come in here and say, well, Stephen's talking about the, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and how we need to know the grace of God and receive His grace and we need to repent. And have you ever done that? And it's that, that thing of we don't want to ever make an assumption that just because you're in this setting, in this place, that you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There's a lot of people that I think are going through the motions there's a lot of people who have religion on their side or uh, a tradition on their side, but is Jesus your Lord and your Savior? That's something to examine today. Long before you go through the procedure and through the ritual of taking the Lord's Supper, it should hopefully cause us pause to be like, I'm taking this because of who He is in my life and because of His sacrifice of His blood and His body. Yes, I want to worship Him, celebrate Him, and thank Him. And so do you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior? Just flat out, do you know Him? And how do you know that you know Him? Can, can, can you say it and speak it? Uh, can you proclaim that? Can you share that? Do you have a firm foundation in that? And so what Paul does is he takes this message into the synagogue. And, and I want you to notice here in, in the passage, the first thing that it says that he does is that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. He reasoned with them. He, he takes his message rooted in the truth, rooted in God's Word. As I've told you before, whether, whether you are here, you're getting to visit somewhere, or you're a part, you're, you move and, and you got to be a part of another church, if they're not preaching God's Word, but just their ideas, get away. Because I, you don't really need to hear my thoughts, you need to hear God's thoughts. My desire and hope is that I'm expanding and trying to, to expose what God has actually already said in order for us to know what He has to say, because His words are life-giving and life-transforming. That's what we need to hear. And so He uses Scripture in order to reason, to, to dialogue, to, 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 to cause them to think for just a moment of, of, of what He's about to present. And as He does so... He does two other things. He not only reasons from Scripture, but he explains from Scripture. He's teaching Scripture. He's teaching the truth. And along the way, he's giving evidence. He's proving and demonstrating to a group of Jewish people in a synagogue that would have known their Scripture, and they have been waiting for the Messiah to come. They know those Messianic prophecies from the Old Testament. They're good Jewish men and women. that They know this truth. They've been waiting for the Christ, the Messiah. And what I love that Paul is, is doing here is he says, he, he's reasoning with them, he's explaining this to them, he's giving evidence, proof uh, that the Christ had to suffer and to rise. I think of Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. That the Christ that we're waiting for, he has to suffer and he has to rise again. And I, this is what I imagine and this is what I picture. Um, some of you remember the game Mousetrap, that board game? Uh, I hardly ever got to play it because the setup was just so much. But you would set up this game mousetrap, and you would have these all these different contraptions. And the funnest part was when finally your opponent got into a certain spot, and you got to kind of start the contraption, and eventually that person got caught. They got trapped in that game. What Paul is doing is, I think, just a very subtle and sly way of kind of, of, of getting his, his listeners, and he's kind of just like pushing them back with his words without them realizing it, closer and closer to this trap door that he's going to pull the lever and be like, I got you. Because I think right now they would be like, oh, he's teaching from the, you know, the Torah. He's teaching from the Old Testament scriptures. Amen, Paul. Amen. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. I believe in that. And then he begins to explain and give evidence that the Christ would suffer and, and die and rise again. Yes. Yes, Paul. Amen. And then he says, and it's Jesus. They got him, he got him right where he wants him. He's got them exactly where he needs them to be. 
He pulls that trap door and he says, yeah, the, the, the Christ, he's actually already arrived. He's actually lived his life, died on a cross, and he's risen again. And he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. And he will be back. And so what you have is you have Paul knowing his audience that they were waiting and hoping for a Messiah. And he's like, before I just say Jesus is the Messiah, I'm going to get you on my side of, yes, we need a Savior. Yes, we're longing for a Messiah. Some of your friends and family members, what they need is, in a word that they might put, is they're looking for a Savior. Some people are looking for the Savior out of the government. Someone to save me, help me. Some people are looking for a family member. Someone help me in my condition, in my circumstances. On and on, people are looking for different means of help, salvation. And so you, 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 can, you can share that. I, I get that. There's something within us of where we want to be helped. We want to be saved. And the answer is only found in the person of Jesus. And so, yes, I agree with you, friend. You need, you need help. And there is one who's going to help you. He's already come. His name is Jesus. You, you present that to him. And as a result of, of, of this, uh, going to these synagogues week after week, it says that some were persuaded to join, and then others were jealous. Some joined, some were jealous. And that's pretty standard even of, of what we experience today. Some hear the Word of God, and they receive it, and they humble themselves, and they join. They join a local church. They join the ministry of that church. They're, they're on board of what God has set in place in the way that He would have it set up. And others become, become jealous. In fact, so jealous that some of these individuals, uh, they, they get so frustrated that they basically round up some wicked men. I believe the King James says that they're like lewd men of like a lesser sort or something like that. It's a wonderful translation. My translation, he found some rapscallions. That's a fun word. He found some rapscallions. And these rapscallions are going to do what rapscallions do. They're going to form a mob. They're going to cause trouble, stir up trouble, cause chaos. And what happens is, is just a little bit of jealousy led into just a mob mentality, into just chaos and just things escalate incredibly quickly. So much so that they set the entire city of Thessalonica in an uproar. And they specifically zero in on the house of a man by the name of Jason. You might even picture like a siege of them literally gathering around the house. No one can get in, no one can get out. And they're, they're just ready to pounce upon these. And the allegations that are presented against Jason and his household, and against really Paul and Silas and Timothy, is specifically it says that they have upset the world, literally the inhabited earth. All of the earth is upset because of these guys and what it is that they're teaching and what it is that they're sharing. And Jason has let them in. In fact, not only are they upsetting the whole world, which would be a great, I think, thing to be said of you and to be said of us that we're causing such a stir that people are like, there's an impact. There's something going on there. There's a movement taking place there. But now they begin to bring up an allegation that's going to be with the church, especially in Rome, uh, in, in the Roman Empire, from now and, and, and basically for, for a very long time. That is, they are basically holding up someone greater than Caesar. They're not saying Caesar is Lord or Caesar is King. They're saying Jesus is King. And time and time again, you're going to get Nero, the crazy emperor of Rome. You're going to get Domitian, one of the great persecutors of Christians in the early church, uh, an emperor of Rome, to where he would take Christians and he would literally tie them up to posts at his garden parties and light them on fire to light his parties. I mean, he was just, he was off. This is how Christians were treated. And sometimes we're like, I'm having a hard time. Someone upset me. 
the early church, man, they went through some stuff in order to continue to proclaim Christ and say, I will not recant. I love, I love the Christ, Jesus, and I love his bride, the church, and, I, and I'm not going to deny it. And so on and on, you're going to see people that are going to have this desire to, to, to basically say, are you going to say Lord Jesus or Lord Caesar? If you say Lord Caesar, there's going to be repercussions. Today, the same can be true for us. Are we going to say Lord Jesus or are we going to say, really what I want is some of Jesus because I get my fire insurance and hopefully I don't go to hell because I got enough of an understanding of him. But I also want culture. Uh, I want ease. I want comfort. I want entertainment. I want pleasure. I want these things. And it's like, no, no, no. Jesus is Lord of your life. Behave as such. Live as such. He's the king. He's the one calling the shots. And so when, when Paul lands here in Thessalonica and he's about to have to take off, uh, I wanted to take you to a passage of when, when Paul, he's going to write two different letters to this specific church there in Thessalonica, First and Second Thessalonians in your Bible. And one of the things that I've enjoyed in going through our study of Acts thus far is it's bringing to life the book of Galatians, the book of Philippians, hopefully the book of First and Second Thessalonians. It's just bringing it to life just a little bit more of like, oh, 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 this makes sense. When Paul wrote this to this letter to the church of First Thess- Thessalonians, that makes sense considering how things got started. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 6, listen to what Paul says. He says, You Thessalonians have also become imitators of us and of the Lord. Note this, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy of the Holy Spirit. But then in verse 8, he says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. To to kind of put this in a nutshell, Paul reasoned with these people with Scripture. He explained it. He taught it. And what we find is Paul says later on, you guys received the word of truth, but you didn't just take it in, you echoed it out. That's literally the word that's being used in 1 Thessalonians 1.8. You sounded forth. You received the word, but then you sounded forth the word. It's not just enough for you guys to come in and go, man, I'm, I, I, got a, I got a word today. Sometimes people are like, feed me, give me a word today. Yes, hopefully you receive a word from the Lord as we study his word. Because when he speaks, we should listen because he's got something to say. But don't just take it in and become gluttonous upon the word of God. Echo it out. Sound forth with what it is that you're gaining and what you're learning whether it's here or, or in small group or an MPA or whatever it may be, when you receive it, have opportunities, make opportunities where you echo it out, where you, where you articulate it, where you get to share it with one another. Okay, so going on to verse, chapter 17, verse 10. So now Paul, Silas, they take off. It says verse 10, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Again, that regular rhythm of Paul. Now, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word. Again, there's that phrase, received the word. For they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether the things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea. Silas and Timothy, they remained there in Berea. 
Now, those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him just as soon as, the, as soon as possible, and so they left. So, I want to go back to the map if we could, just kind of give you guys again your bearings to kind of see what's going on. So, they're here in Thessalonica. There's a riot that's stirred up by those who were jealous of people receiving faith in Christ. And so there's a mob going on, mob mentality, chaos. So they get Paul and Silas and Timothy, they get them out of there, and they make their way here kind of down into Berea. And it's here in Berea where they're, they're having, again, such an incredible impact with what the Lord has for them that eventually the same kind of thing happens. People hear the word, receive the word, but another group of people, they don't like hearing it. So much so, apparently they were doing, God was just moving in such a, a powerful and kind of echoing type way that news of what God was doing in Berea traveled back to Thessalonica. And that same jealous group was like, I thought we ran them out of our city. Let's go run them out of Berea as well. And so they take off to Berea in order to, to agitate and stir up things once again, just just troublemakers, essentially what they are. But what we find in this section with the Bereans is that when Paul gets to Berea, again, he does his normal thing. He goes into a synagogue. That's a, that's a regular method of ministry that he does, which is wonderful. And, and he does this, he gets in there, and he begins to, to teach the truth. And it says that these Bereans received the word. And they received it with eagerness and with examination. They received the word, they examined the word. Now, I, I share that with you because the Bereans are an incredible example for every single one of us. That you may hear someone give a teaching on, online. You, you may go into a church and hear someone teach. You may go into a small group. You may come into this specific facility and, and, and this specific church family. And don't take even everything that I have to say as like, well, that's true. <laughs> I'm, I'm not God. I'm not inerrant. There are going to be times where I'm going to say something and it's not going to be perfect because, well, I'm not perfect. And there's going to be moments where I'm going to say some things where I have no desire for that to be the case. But you need to take what is being presented to you and examine it study it, get together with a group to see what, it, what, what the truth of the matter is. Uh, I think I've shared this before, but I remember my systematic theology professor in seminary had made the comment that, that if, you, if you feel like that you have the ability to just gain all of your theology on your own, if you, you take the Word, you study the Word, th- there's incredible uh, ability to be able to learn so much, but the way in which we begin to really develop and understand our theology is within community to where we as a group of people are examining the Word together and saying, not do, what do I want it to say, not what do I think it says, but what is God teaching? What is God saying, regardless of how I feel about it, regardless of what circumstance I'm in, I want to hear specifically what God has to say about the matter, and I want to examine, is it true or, or is it not? And so they, they examine or they receive the Word with eagerness. That's why I would say when you come in here, I'm not asking you to be any kind of like, <laughs> oh, I love Stephen, I want to hear what he has to say. But that when you would come in here, there would be a sense of anticipation of we get to hear from God. What does God have to say? And unfortunately, so many times what we do when it comes to church is we're stifling maybe a yawn. Or when we wake up in the morning to get into the Word, it's like, is there anything else I can do in my list in my head that I need to check off before 
I read my Bible. We're all guilty of it. It's almost as if we take the Word of God for granted because we know it's here, we know it's available, and we can say all the right things, even amen ourselves of the, the Word is good, all, God is good all the time, all the time. And we have all these things, but are we getting into the Word to examine it with eagerness, to hear what God has to say? I believe if we got into the Word just a little bit more individually, but also corporately, where we get into the Word, then we might begin to just see clarity and, and, and receive the wisdom of how to leave, uh, or excuse me, live and lead this life that God has called us to. The other is, is as, they, as they take the time to examine it, it, it reminds me of, of even when he writes to the Thessalonians, of you've received the Word, you echo the Word. I think one of the most practical things that you can do is whether you're leaving a small group Bible study or whether you're leaving Mission Point Academy on a Thursday night or whether you're even leaving a setting like this is if we're not careful, we can have the tendency when we leave, because again, I've been guilty of this. I go into a worship setting and when I leave, I'm kind of going, well, the music was okay. And, you know, I did like that song and the message is a little bit longer than normal. And there's all kinds of things that we can say about the service, but what do you have to say about the Word? The Word. And one of, the, I think, the most beautiful things that we have is when you have a chance to maybe go home with your family after a service, or you get to go out to eat with a group of people that, 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 that is here, is taking the time, some of my favorite moments is having that conversation of, of, of what did you receive? Like, what did you hear? Like, what stood out to you? But, but often what we do is we take it and then we never talk about it again. And it's not saying that, you know, you need to take what Stephen's preaching to you and go, oh, well, I think he said this, this, and this. It's, it's, it's just saying, I, I want to talk about the Word. In the same way that I want it to become something for us when it comes to gospel conversations and using the idea of these ping pong balls, uh, it, it, all it is is hopefully a visual reminder of, and we want to be intentional about engaging people with the gospel and having conversations that include the name of Jesus uh, in, in a reverential way, and that, and that we would do the same when it comes to the Word and discussing the Word. I want it to become something for you as mission point and for whatever circles that you are in. Of It just becomes normal for you to be like, I can't help but kind of share and echo what it is that I'm hearing, that I'm learning. Not, not as the uh, stereotypical, cliched, Bible-thumper kind of person, but someone who just passionately loves Jesus and loves God's Word, and it's just like, man, this is what I'm learning. And this is what I'm receiving, and I want to share that with you. And I believe the Bereans and the Thessalonians, uh, as we see in, in the, the, the letter that Paul wrote, that seems to be a passion of theirs. And so when it comes to reading the Word and having that regular rhythm of reading, Sometimes the question is asked to me. I probably get this about at least once a quarter of, well, what translation should I read? Whichever one you will read, let that be your translation. Sometimes we get so caught up in, well, is it King James? Is it New King James? Is it New American Standard? Is it English Standard? Is it... There's all kinds of translations out there. Whichever one you will read, read it. Do I have preferences of what I do enjoy? Yeah, I like a literal translation because I want to take what was originally written in the Greek, the Hebrew, or the Aramaic, and I want to see what it has to say because I don't read Greek so well or Hebrew or Aramaic. I want to hear as best as I can what was originally being written. And so, yeah, I do like the New American Standard. It's more of a literal word-by-word -word translation. But in the end, what will you actually read? What will you actually get into the Word in order to hear what it has to say and to study it? And so, and so, they're here in Berea. Many people come to faith in Christ. 
There's always opposition when this happens. The Thessalonians who didn't like what was going on up in Thessalonica, they stir up and cause uh, some trouble. And we see it time and time again. But the church sends Paul out. Sends him out towards the, the sea, the coast, so that he can get away and be safe. Sometimes we look at Paul and we're like, man, Paul, he, he was willing just to stick in there. He is, but he also uses his wits. And the church them, itself is like, Paul, we've we, we got to get you out of here. we got to get you safe. And so now he makes his way here. Look at verse 16. He makes his way down the coast to Athens. It says, Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. For he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idol babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaiming, uh, to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So, and they took him, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. And so, now we're in Athens, so if we pull that map back up, I'll show you exactly where we're at. Athens is not that close to Berea, relatively compared to, like, say, Thessalonica and Philippi. So he makes his all his way down here to Athens. When he makes his way down to Athens, Athens was, uh, was one of the few cities within the Roman Empire that even though they were a part of the empire, they were considered essentially free. Like they could kind of conduct their business because of how influential they had been before under the rule of Alexander the Great. And so you have within this, within this city, Paul showing up on his own. And, and as he does so, I want you to underline these words in your Bible, if you don't mind. It says, verse 16, while Paul was waiting. What do you do when you're waiting? We've all been in a waiting room. It's the worst. We've all had to wait at a restaurant for our name to be called to finally get to that table so we could eat. You've had to sit at the DMV. It, it, waiting is not an enjoyable thing. So while they are waiting, what do you do? I can remember waiting in line at Six Flags in, in Texas with my roommates. While we waited, we would go through the alphabet and name different artists and songs and see who could uh, you know, name the most, that kind of thing. We got people to participate around us because the lines were long, and we would wait forever to finally ride that Batman ride or whatever it was. Sometimes I can be strategic when I'm waiting. This past week, I had the opportunity to go to be selected for jury duty, and I was looking forward to it. And so I, I was like, I want to I see what this is like. How can I can participate? I had about an hour where we just sat and waited in this big room before we got called upstairs to the fifth floor. And I was just like, I'm going to be strategic uh, because I have the time. I pulled out my phone so I could use my email, and I was emailing different things, and I was sending some of the people in this very room some correspondence, and I was getting stuff ready. I was literally going over my stuff for this sermon, and I was just reading through Acts uh, 17 and just jotting down what I'm observing, and, and I, I felt so productive. And then there's other times where I'm sitting at the doctor's office and I just seem to automatically kind of grab my phone out of my pocket. And I, I read somewhere that on average, a person touches their phone like over 2,000 times a day. Like it's crazy how often we're just touching or grabbing the phone and just wanting to do something with our phone. And I was just like, there are certain times I don't wait well. Uh, I, can't, I can't just sit there. 
So, or sometimes if I don't get my phone, it's just like I'm just staring off into oblivion like some kind of doofus. And I'm just like, what, what could I be doing more strategic with, with my time? And what we see with Paul is he's incredibly, incredibly strategic here. Because while he's waiting, he's observing. It, it says that his spirit was being provoked with him as he was observing. That there, there was something within him that was moved. And immediately it reminded me of a passage that's kind of at the root of what we're doing with with gospel conversations, is Matthew chapter 9. You may be familiar with this, but Matthew chapter 9 is this passage where Jesus is going through all the cities and villages, and He's teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and sickness. And look at what He observes. In, in, in Matthew nine thirty six, it says, Seeing the people, He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. The whole point of, of hopefully what we're wanting to do of making disciples, of being a church who would make disciples, who in turn make disciples of Jesus, is that something even like with gospel conversations is we're, we're wanting to have an opportunity to, to identify those that are around us so that we can develop a burden for them so that we might demonstrate to them compassion, that we might put love in action and not just be people who show up on Sunday and go, we should love all people, and then we do nothing. Let's begin with, our, with prayer and on our knees and on our face and, and, and saying, how can I engage with these individuals? And it begins perhaps even just with seeing them, observing them, noticing their situation and their lifestyle, their circumstance, so that you can come alongside them. And that's exactly what Paul does. He sees what's going on in Athens. And so he goes, he goes into the synagogue, and, and it says here that he reasoned with them. It's what he's done before. He reasons specifically here with the religious. He reasons with the religious. He reasons with those within a synagogue. It's the same thing we've seen him do in just about every city. Paul shows up in a city, finds a synagogue, reasons to them with the scriptures. But what we see here is something wonderful. Is Paul adapts. He adapts his method in this moment. Because he doesn't only stay engaged with the religious, he goes also to what I'm calling just the regular. He goes into the market they marketplace, the everyday kind of community and commerce of the people. He's just going and he's engaged with the people. And specifically, he gets engaged with two different uh, types of philosophical camps, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And what I want to share with you, because when you read this passage later on in your life, I want you to have an idea of who the Epicureans are and who the Stoics are. And they might even kind of sound familiar to you. The Epicureans were a group of people that they denied the divine providence. They didn't even fear divine judgment or any kind of eternal reward because essentially it was that idea of live your life now. If it feels good, do it. Does that sound familiar? Live your life. Do what you want to do. You do you. You be happy. You, you, you just enjoy your life because there, there is really nothing after this. Once you die, you're dead. That's Epicureans, kind of a hedonistic type mindset and lifestyle. The Stoics, the Stoics, they were pantheists. They believed in gods and gods and all the gods and the divine are in all things. They confuse God, even like we might even hear today. Some people refer to God as Mother Nature or Mother Earth. That ain't the case. What we have is they would see and think of just the earth and nature itself as, well, there's a God. And so they had all these gods that they would, they would worship. They would say that you need to be self-sufficient, content, regardless of any circumstance. Don't, don't go too high in your life and don't go too low in your life. Even if you have high highs, 
mountaintop experiences, stay even keel. If you have the worst of experiences and you're in the valley, just stay even keel. You've got a stiff upper lip. You respond calmly to everything. They just viewed history as this unending cycle of chaos and order, chaos and order, chaos and order. One way to put it, and I wish Kirk was here today because he loves Star Trek. How many of you have actually seen Star Trek? Okay, we got some of you. Some of you aren't going to know at all what this means. But there's two characters in the show Star Trek. There's Captain Kirk and there's Spock. They legitimately, they took the idea of Captain Kirk being kind of this gregarious, outgoing, living life, having fun kind of person. He was the Epicurean of the bunch. Stock, or Stock, Spock, <laughs> Spock was that stoic, stiff upper lip, incredibly rational, incredibly calm. And you have these two just diametrically different individuals there on that show. Well, they got it from specifically Epicureans and Stoics. That's where they got it from. So if that helps you kind of picture what these are, think of uh, James T. Kirk and think of the guy with pointy ears. And you might remember Epicureans and Stoics. And so what, what he does is, is, is he gets to this point and then finally they say, hey, would you come to the Areopagus with us? And I'm going to show you what that is in just a second. And what they did is, verse 21 sounds a lot like today. It says, they would love spending their time telling or hearing something new. We are inundated with information. Even information I don't really want to hear about. <laughs> with social media, with news, with Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, podcasts. Like, we have so much news, so much information just flying at us that we're almost consumed and obsessed with just that. And it was the same here in, in Athens. And so they asked Paul, Paul, you're saying some pretty incredible things. You're talking about Jesus and the resurrection. Who is he? And let's, let's just hear more about that. So they take him to the Areopagus. I've got a picture for you of the Areopagus, I hope. No, no, no picture. We don't have a picture of the Areopagus. And so uh, just imagine that the Areopagus is basically, it's just, it's just a hill, a big stone hill. It would have been just a little bit below um, the, uh, the Parthenon and that kind of thing. The Parthenon is what's been modeled in Nashville, if you've ever been to the Parthenon at Bicentennial Park. And what would happen is, is this was actually a place where people would gather together, specifically a lot of intellectuals would gather here, and also um, a lot of uh, politicians. A lot of things were decided here at the Areopagus. It, it was a place where just... Um, even law cases would maybe be adjudicated and discussed. And so what you have is Paul's invited to this spot to be able to talk to them. And some of you have heard that of the Areopagus maybe referred to as Mars Hill. Even in my Bible, it says right before verse 22, it has a title, Sermon on Mars Hill. You may have seen that before or heard that before. All that simply means is Areopagus is uh, the first few letters of Areopagus are A-R-E or Ares. Ares was the god of war. And in Greek, his name was Ares. In Rome, he was known as Mars. So it's the same guy, just a different name. So whether you call it the Areopagus or you call it Mars Hill, one would kind of have a Greek name, one would kind of have a Roman name. Either way, Paul has been invited to a pretty impressive place to be able to proclaim Christ. And as we close, let's look at verses 22 through the end of chapter 17 and see what Paul does. So it says, So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Essentially what he says is, I see that you guys are very, very religious. 
Notice what he doesn't do. That sometimes if we're not careful of the church or as Christians, we can almost be antagonistic to those that we're wanting to minister to. Just calling them pagans. Calling them sinners. And though that may be true, there's a way in which to approach and to engage people that might make you a bit more receptive to their ears of what you actually have to say. And so what Paul does is he, he observes and he looks around and he sees something within their culture and he does what he does whether he's in a synagogue or whether he's on the Areopagus in the marketplace. He makes a beeline for Jesus. He, he, he goes straight specifically to Jesus, but specifically the resurrection of Jesus. In the early church, sometimes what we do in the modern church today is, is we do, we focus on the cross. The cross is a huge deal. But the early church, the cross was still a big deal. But, but the, 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 the true defining difference of the faith of the Christian was the resurrection of Jesus. Like That was the game changer. And that's what Paul here is, is, is proclaiming. And so he sees all these idols, and, and it moves him to be like, i gotta, I got to connect with them in order that they would know the truth. And so what I, what I would just simply ask is, when you look around, what do you see in the culture that is around you? And does it move you to speak up? Or does it cause you to, to, to fall back? Sometimes the culture can be loud and abrasive, and it's not that we need to come back and be just as loud and abrasive. That's generally not very helpful. But it is this idea of, of don't allow the culture to cause you to shrink back. See what's going on within the culture, within your family, those that you live, work, and play with, and find methods and means in which you can engage them with the truth of God's Word. And so what Paul does is, again, he kind of changes his method. He's not in a synagogue. He's with just these kind of regular people, not very religious, but yet they seem to be uh, uh, big on worshiping idols. And he basically lets them know, uh, I know you guys have like 30,000 idols here in Athens, but there's one marker that you have that I'm going to connect with in order to bridge this to Christ, to bridge this to Jesus and his resurrection. And so what he does in verse 24 is beautiful. He starts with God, and he's going to end with the judgment. And sometimes when we share our faith, seems like God doesn't come up and, and be careful if you bring up sin and judgment because people don't want to hear that. But Paul would say they very much need to hear the truth of sin and judgment. Because otherwise, what are you repenting from? And why do you need salvation if everything's just fine? There needs to be the whole truth. So verse 24, he starts with creation. He says, the God who made the world and all the things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man, Adam, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. Again, he talks about the creator. He starts with creation. And in fact, be here Thursday. We're going to have Tim here, Tim Toll, to talk about creation. It's a great place to begin. So he starts with creation. He says God is creator, but he's not only creator, he's sustainer. And what we find is in this passage, the the uh, Athenian culture, there's this idea of kind of the gods need us. They need us to worship them. Our God, the one true living God, he does not need us, but he wants us. Our, our God doesn't need us in any way. We need him. 
We find that He's creator, sustainer, He's good, He's sovereign. And in verse 27, it says that He is not far from each one of us. And so apparently we have this problem of knowing Him and finding Him. We're, we're groping around, and the issue is sin. The reason why we're groping to try to find Him and can't see Him is because of sin. We've been blinded, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We've been blinded to the truth by an enemy. And then verse 28, he says this, For in Him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are His children. What Paul is doing is he's quoting their own poets. It's in the same way that in a sermon you might hear someone use a, uh, a movie illustration or something in the news in order to try to get people's attention. We're going to meet you where you're at in order for you to kind of hear it and to under, understand it. And in verse 29, he says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone. It's not an idol, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Idolatry is huge, but God is bigger. Therefore, verse 30, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. There's the call. What must I do? I'm hearing all these things about God, but what do I do? Everywhere we should repent. Why? Why should we repent? Why should we preach repentance, teach repentance, that people should turn from what they're doing and go towards God? Because He, God, has fixed a day in which He will judge the world. Judgment is coming. God's declaring to everybody, repent, and here's your human responsibility. Repent because God will judge. A fixed day is going to come where the world in righteousness through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. Before he referenced a man in verse 36, he's talking of Adam. Out of one man, every nation of mankind lives on the earth. But in verse 31, there's another man that he's referring to who's been appointed and raised from the dead, and that's Jesus. We all come from Adam. Let me ask you this, have you been born again, meaning you come from Jesus? Have you come to saving faith in Him? And it's not just giving a head acknowledgement to Him, it's understanding that He's alive, that He rose from the dead. He gives proof positive that this is the one that's appointed because He's not dead anymore. He is alive. And so, last few verses, we see their response. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined and believed, among whom are also Dionysius and Arab. Areopagat, Paget, I don't know, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. What you have is everyone's going to respond to the truth of God. Some people responded by sneering or rejecting. Others responded by saying, I want to hear some more. Could you come back? And other peoples are simply saying, I want to join and I want to believe. I want to receive what it is that you have to say. This is going to be true for you guys as well and true for me. The point of this isn't to fill up this lantern with ping pong balls because that's not the point. The point is that we would be intentional about engaging people with the truth. And sometimes when you go out and you are being obedient of wanting to make disciples, sometimes they will receive it and sometimes they will reject it. Your job is not to determine whether they will receive or reject or say, can I hear some more? That's, that's up to them. 
And God and God alone is the only one who's going to save them. But will you be that vessel that is willing to meet people and relate with them where they are at? And so as we come into a time of our own response, and we're going to have a chance to observe the Lord's Supper, there's two things I want to leave you with as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. One is this. Get in the Word. Receive the Word. Get into it, examine it, respond to it. Be a student of the Word. I know there's a whole bunch of other things in our culture and our world today that can distract you from that. Get into the Word. Receive it. The second thing is, again, no assumptions. Just because you're here, that, that doesn't mean... <laughs> it's, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that you know Jesus just because you're here. You know Jesus because you've experienced His saving grace. And to know Him, you have to repent and believe. You've got to believe that He is the Messiah, the one who is alive. Have you ever? In just a second, we're going to sing a song that you guys are familiar with. You guys can come on up. We're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. What I want to invite you to do is during that time is if you're an individual who's just saying, I don't know if I've believed, I don't know if I've repented of my sin, but I want to have that kind of conversation. For the first couple of verses, I'm just going to be here praying for you. And I would invite you, if you'd like to have a conversation, to come and visit with me. For others of you during this time, this is the time where I'm asking you that if if you would, make sure that you got the elements for the Lord's Supper if you're going to be participating in that today. And that you would take this time to examine your heart and examine your relationship with the Lord because the best thing that we could do, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, that whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. A man must examine himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Don't come to the table flippantly. Come to the table having examined and prepared yourself. So, ladies, if you would, would you, would you sing as they do? Use this time to, to get up, get the elements, prepare yourself for the Lord's Supper.